new series uh, just now. Somebody asked me in the week if we were done with holiness. I said, no, we're going to carry on trying to be holy until we get to heaven. But we are into a new series, and it's called Who Do You Think You Are? And it is about our identity, which I think is an issue that is of the moment. It's maybe always been an issue, but it definitely feels prevalent um, at the moment. There are, as we are at a Thanksgiving service, there are lots we hope for our loved ones, aren't there? There are loads of things we would want for we, Asher, into the future, that his parents would want for him into the future. Jobs, relationships, fun, some good holidays. But above that, and perhaps as foundational to him getting that, we'd want them to know, we'd want him to know who he is. We'd want him to have a sense of his identity. We'd want him to be confident in his identity. We'd want him to find his place in the big picture. We'd want him to be confident right at his core. It's pretty chaotic, his life. I think one of the questions we could ask is, can you really expect to have that kind of an identity in this world? How do you parent so that Asher has that kind of self inner confidence, a sense of who he is, where he sits in the big scheme of things. We're going to look at one of the most, I think probably beautiful passages in the Bible, but also one of the most beautiful characters in the Bible. Um, compelling, like just an example of a, just this hugely compelling, I mean, I've, I've not clocked eyes on Hannah, but she's, you know, she's marriage material, isn't she? She's just this compelling character. And we're going to see two things, I think, about, our, about identity in this story. We're going to see, so you have to bear with as I explain this. I don't think it's explicit in the passage, but I think we find it as we go through. We're going to see some of the flaws in the way that we search for our identity. We're going to see some of the flaws in the way we search for our identity, and we're going to see where that leads, where these flaws can lead. And the other thing we're going to see, I think, is where the search for the real us, the real you, without trying to be too cheesy, could begin, and then where it might end up. So those two things, the flaws and the real you. And we're going to look in this story. So we're going to pop the text up. We're going to kind of dive straight in. There's, there's something that I think that we see in the text straight away. And I'm going to sort of go through the first couple of verses for you. And this was true then, and it's true now. The, the circumstances in which we are, in which we have to find our identity, are complicated and complex circumstances. The search for identity on planet Earth, there is so much stuff going on. And just so just cast your eyes over this text. We'll make our way, you know, read through it with me. We'll go through it. Just tick off the list of complications. It starts in verse 1, there was a certain man. For some people, it's complicated already. There is a certain kind of man. It's already a complex situation. But see where we get to in verse 2? He's got two wives. He's got two wives. A certain man, it's complicated already, he's got two wives. And on, on this, by the way, we should just say, some people read the Bible and think the Bible makes, a, a, you know, advocates for sort of polygamy. There are lots of stories in the Bible where people have got more than one wife, but they nearly always end in tears. It's not like it advocates it, it just says this was, is what was going on. One had children, one didn't. How complicated are we already in this circumstance? Verse 3, 
We read about two guys called Hophni and Phineas, the guys that were the sons of Eli working in the temple. These guys, we'll read about it later on. We'll, we'll make our way through this story. These were corrupted people. So not only has Hannah got a difficult home life, the counsel she's getting, the leadership that she's getting, the advice she's getting comes from corrupted leaders. Maybe we know a little bit about that on planet Earth at the moment, don't we? Verse 4 and 5, read through with me. Uh, Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife, Peniah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. The complications grow. We see in this story between these two women, favoritism, maybe you could call it favoritism, and it's favoritism that doesn't end up, you know, see how this sort of pads out. He loves Hannah. At least that's what the text tells us. I don't know what he felt about Paniah. How's that going to go down? It adds layers of complication. It antagonizes, doesn't it? It adds layers of complication. There's favoritism. We know about favoritism in the world. We know about division. And what happens then, verses 6 through to 7? Because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. You've got jealousy, which feels like the story of all of our lives at some point. Then in verse 8, we get this maybe well-intentioned husband. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, and I feel like I've found myself in this place many times, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons. It's, it's kind of well-intentioned, and it maybe comes from a good place, but it misses what she's going through, doesn't it? A moment when the man doesn't quite grasp the magnitude or the depth of the situation. It's a misunderstanding. It's complicated. Look, that's how many verses into the story are we? Life is complex, isn't it? Let's not forget that. Let's not overlook that. When we are finding our identity, it's complex, and it's It's at least the same now. If not, I would say, thinking about we Asher's life going into the future, he's going to have, I mean, it feels incredibly complex now as we work out our identity. We've got no idea where we're going to be in 10 years' time, what what the next identity issues or the things facing Asher will be. It's a hugely difficult thing to find our identity. That's the first thing I think that we see in the text. The second thing that that we see are the flaws And I'm going to say this kind of lovingly and with a real acceptance that I wander into all these flaws all of the time. And I guess I'm trying to make the argument that these are flaws. I'm trying to win you around to consider looking for identity. How we look for identity can be flawed in this way. There are a couple of ways, aren't there, that we look for identity. One of the ways that we do it, and this is not this is not just stuff I'm making up. This is I've done my research. All right, I've done a bit of. Wednesday afternoon was about reading about identity. I've listened to a few podcasts and that kind of thing. And there's two main ways that we come to identity. There's the traditional way that we come to identity, which is that we look outside of ourselves to see where we fit. We see the big picture. We see what's going on. We see the way that society works. We see the jobs that are out there. And we look up at this big picture and we go, right, so to find my identity, I have got to mold myself into that thing. And I've got to I find my identity in that way, we, we try and fit in. That's, that's what we would understand as the traditional way we find identity. The next way, maybe the more modern or the contemporary way that we find identity is, maybe you're ahead of me, if it's not outside of ourselves, where is our identity? We find it 
within ourselves. We look deep within ourselves. We see that lots, I think, at the moment, that we look deep within ourselves to really find ourselves. We have to look deep within ourselves. And then what do we say? Right, the rest of the world now, not, we're not going to fit in with you to find our identity. You can react to us, and you can see what you make, make of us, and you'll have to accommodate us, the two ways that we find identity. And I think that we see them really clearly in Hannah. She's got huge outside pressure to what? To produce offspring. The culture of the day, the accepted norms of the day, the identity of, of a mother of the day, this huge pressure on her to produce offspring. And she's got this huge internal wrestling match. Is this really what I need to be? You can see those two things playing out. And these are the roads that we go down in life, I think. Tell me you've not gone down the road of looking out to see where you fit in. Tell me you've not gone down the road of searching inside yourself to see if there's somebody else in there that might make you feel more complete. Fitting in and internal wrestling would half sum up a lot of my life. Maybe it would sum up a lot, a lot of your life too. The thing with this identity search is, I think the flaw with it is, external pressures on us for identity, they're never reasonable. At some point down the line, the weight of this, of trying to please what's out there and, and what you've got to look at it and say is there's lots of, there's lots of good reasons why, ident- why we should look out there. There's lots of things that make sense out there. But that's trying to fit in in this way. And we see it in this text. It's just going to put too much pressure on. You see what Hannah's got to do? She's a, she's a, she can't have kids. At least that's what it seems. And the societal pressure says to her, no, you need to have kids. Huge pressure. We can't, at some point, we're going to slip up with that pressure, if that's how we look for identity. It might not be the kid thing, but the amount of pressure, if we just think about what it is to be a woman in the, in the 20, what century, in 21st century, we're still in that one. Huge pressure to look good, to have kids and look good, to have a great job and ki- have kids and look good and get tea on the table and everything else. Huge pressure if we look for our identity outside of ourselves, at some point we're not going to cut it. At some point we're not going to be able to meet that bar. And then we say to ourselves, well, we live in the contemporary age and now we don't have to worry too much about fitting in out there. We can look within ourselves. We can do that. Here's the thing about looking within ourselves. So I am am an introvert and I am somebody who goes and, and does all that, searches inside himself. But the thing with looking inside yourself is, and think about this for yourself. I don't know about you, but in there, it's unreliable. If I go in there, it's unreliable. In, in the church at the moment, we've got, I think we've still got some, we've got teenagers in here. And we're very blessed at Christ Church to have so many teenagers. And they're really, we've got, I'm going to tell, I'm going to just say it as it is. Pretty cool. Pretty, like, yes, yes I am, yes. Putting his hand up at the back, I, you know, pulling that in, yes. Saying, and saying to themselves, I think often we've, we're nailing it at the moment. You know, just we've got it together. We've got it together in a good way. We know, we know about fashion. We know about life. We, we know, yes, exactly right. Yeah, we've got this. We know this. We know about ethics. We know how to save the planet. All this, all this kind of stuff. You can nod along with me. The thing is, and they won't say it to you face to face, but there's a couple of generations up above you, just below me, but above you, who look and think, these guys have got no idea. No, wait till they hit their 
late 20s or early 30s. They've got no idea what's coming because they think that they've got it. They've lived a little bit longer, they have kids or they've got a house or whatever, and they know, they've you know, a bit more life experience, they know. But those people in their 30s, they've got people like me, grey around the edges, lived a little bit longer, looking at them going, these guys have got no clue what's going on. And the real tragedy for me is, guys full of grace in their 60s look at me and go, this guy's not got a... How has he become the pastor? This guy's not got a clue what he's doing. And the difficulty for them is, these guys looking down on them in their 80s and 90s going, these guys haven't got a clue. Do you know what it means? None of us have got a clue. That's what it means. None of us have got it nailed. We all think that we've got it nailed because our gut instinct, as far as we can delve inside of ourselves, it's unreliable. We might get it right some of the time. might get it right loads of the time, but it's unreliable. There are things that we think are absolutely on point now. Culturally, ethically, honestly, there are things that we think are absolutely, we couldn't get any more progressed. In, in my notes, I've got in 100 years, but as I think about it, in five years, we'll look back and go, that was completely wrong. It was, it was immoral. Because it's unreliable what's inside of us. Here's my assessment of those two ways of looking for identity. I think at some point, if we look for identity in what's out there, or what's in here, at some point, we won't meet it. It'll be unreliable, or it'll break us. Maybe you've had it already, that it's broken you already as you've looked for your identity in these places. Do you see where it leaves Hannah in verse 7 and 8? She's got this internal wrestling match. She's got this huge pressure to conform. She's weeping. It's a, dep- it's a depressed person, isn't it? It's depression. When you... Re- not seen it before, but when you read it like that, she's weeping, she's not eating, she's downhearted, she's, a, she's in crisis. What the author does in this story at the moment, I think is incredibly interesting. You've got this woman who's in, who's in breakdown with this identity crisis, and he doesn't rush past it. He says, I'm going to hold you over. We're going to watch the train wreck. Verses 9 through to 16, it's that, it's a bit like watching some of the news at the moment. You can't, it breaks your heart and you can't not watch it at the same time. Like the dramas that the BBC or whoever puts on the TV, it's like train wreck television. Just read through this with me as we see that the author holds us over this train wreck story. Once they'd finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house in her deep anguish Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you'll only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I'll give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. She kept on praying to the Lord. Eli, this is the priest watching on the stool, observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, And her lips were moving, but a voice was not heard. Eli thought, and this is another man barking up the wrong tree. Eli thought she was drunk. And he said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. 
don't take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. It holds us over, this meltdown. It makes us see it and it makes us look at it. So I'll go through the text, sitting above the text. You can see that this woman's been keeping it together, having been provoked year on year. She's held it together just about enough. And then she finds herself in this moment, in the public arena, with eyes on her, and she has this breakdown. I guess further emphasized by the, another guy who looks in and just assumes drunkenness and misses the heart of where she's at. And she makes this desperate plea in verse 11. Give me a son and I'll give him back. And you look at it and you go, it's, it's partly beautiful, it partly looks faithful, it's really, really desperate. It's the kind of stuff that we shout up to God. And it's, it's quite a bit pagan. The gods around would regularly be interacted with in that way. Give me, give me something and then I'll give you, you know, battering with the God. It's just this crazy, desperate cry out. The question that you ask, I think, when you see this, you go, why does God let me see this? Why is God's word taking me to this meltdown? Why does, why does God show me this suffering? It's kind of what we feel, I think, as we watch the news and the social media at the moment. Why am I, you, you want to go to God, what am I supposed to do with this? Why am I made to look at this? Might be what you'll feel looking ahead to Asher's life, some of the difficulties that will come with the next load of problems. Why, why, do, why do we face with any of this? I think the story gives us two things to think about in terms of where finding the real you starts. First thing I think that we see in the text is that God is at work in the brokenness. God is at work in the brokenness, and it's pretty broken. It's a train wreck to watch, and yet we know that God is at work in the brokenness. One of the things you've got to ask yourself about, about the text when you come to the Bible is, what is the point of this story? What is, if we believe this is God's word, what is he saying here? What is the point of this story? Is it not to embitter each other? Is it that polygamy is flawed? Is it, is it that God answers all of our prayers? If we, make the, if we're desperate enough, if we make the right kind of barter with him, is it that? What do you think? Think about this moment, this seemingly broken, desperate woman futile moment, collapsing, you know, almost um, sort of social suicide to sort of collapse in this way. But what happens with this woman? What's the story here? This woman's prayer brings Samuel. Samuel the prophet. Samuel the prophet becomes a man of God, a man searching for the next king of Israel. He wanders down to Bethlehem and he finds Jesse's house, and he finds this little shepherd boy that we shouldn't think too much of, pretty good looking, but not all that else going for him. And he says, this guy is going to be the king of Israel. He's going to shape God's people. He's going to be the kind of person who is fierce in battle. People love to follow him, but he's not only going to be fierce in battle, he's going to win their hearts as well. He's going to establish 
this nation, so people take this nation seriously and look at this nation. But that's only half of what Samuel leading to David is going to do. Because David, through bloodline, through symbolism, will point solely to the man Jesus. In and Jesus will come again in, a, in possibly the most broken moment in human history. Huge injustice put on his shoulders. And what will he do? What will he achieve? In this broken moment, just a woman collapsing in a temple. No obvious answers to any of these prayers. She's just thinking, I guess, about survival about the next day. And yet God, in this impossible situation, he's not just working to redeem her, but working to provide People with a nation to see, and not just with a nation to see, but with a saviour to save them. In the brokenness, God's doing way more than she could have dreamed possible or ever imagined. God is at work in the brokenness. What does it mean for us? As we look around into the brokenness, as we look ahead to our kids' lives, wondering what on earth is going to happen to our planet, as we look at the news, maybe even feeling like, is it worth sending one up? In the brokenness, in the seeming impossible moments, even when we've made a fool of ourselves, even when we're praying prayers that actually have got a lot in it for us, God is working in the brokenness. Point one, keep sending up the prayers. Don't stop sending up the prayers. God is at work in this brokenness. And it gives us our first clue to what real identity is, I think. It's when the search inside is empty. Do you see where we find Hannah in this moment? Verse 13 and 15, let me just read those out. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled, not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. She's praying in her heart. Yeah, verse 15 drinking wine and beer, I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. She's praying from the heart and she's pouring out her soul. This is the first key to identity, I think. And I'm putting this out there for you to think about your identity search. It's when you stopped, you stopped perhaps looking to how you can fit in out there, although it makes a lot of sense to do that, and you stop just getting further and further and you realize you take what is in here and you go up with it. Do you see what she's doing? She takes what is deep in there and she empties herself almost and she looks up to the sky, to the Almighty. That's where real identity starts. Where does it go? This is the last point. Where the search for the real you goes. And this part of, this, this part of the story, we're looking at verse 24 through 28, it gets, it's almost crazier than, this, than the second part of the story. It's more of a train wreck to watch. It's hard to accept this next bit, I think. You, you, if you read it sort of, if you sort of brush through it on a nice sunny morning when you're reading your Bible, you think, oh, that's really beautiful. You actually analyze what's going on here. This is hard to take in, hard to accept. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, this boy that she's got, this miracle. Young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, 
when the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has given me what I asked of him, so now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. She'd, so I sort of dug around. I wanted to figure out how long she'd gotten to know this baby. Don't know, don't know very much about weaning. I was there as if I was present uh, through, <laughs> through my, the early stages of my kids' lives, but I wasn't paying as much attention as a father should. But in these times, the weaning would go along long enough for you to form just a huge bond with the baby. This is a difficult parting. This was all, this was, it seems to me, this was all that she wanted. She'd gotten to know this boy. It was all that she wanted. And yet she finds herself in a position after this whole story, this whole direction of travel, this year after year, she finds herself doing what? Giving him away. It's a story that's just unpalatable and crazy unless you can see the underlying purposes of God, unless you can see the underlying identity message that has been given out in this passage. Real identity is found and established when you realize all that you have. See what she gets? See what she's realized? This is what I want. I've done everything I can to get it, but I have to accept that this is something that has been given to me. Real identity comes when you look at the world and you see that what you have, everything that you have, has been given to you. It's a gift. Everything that we've got. We find ourselves, when we look up at the world and we begin to realize that what we have is a gift given. One of my really unlikely Twitter followers is a guy called Tom Parker. He's in a boy band called The Wanted. It's not current enough to make sense. It's not an old boy band that I might sort of, it's like a, it's just weird that I like, almost, as I say out loud now, Tom Parker, The Wanted. He's got an incurable brain tumor is the reason that I got interested in him. And he's handling it in the most beautiful, amazing, sort of seemingly selfless, brave sort of a way. I watched a documentary about him. And one of the guys that he ended up meeting was a similar brain tumor sufferer, victim, patient, as it were. And this guy, they were having a conversation, talking to each other about what they were going through. And he was just about to go for an open water swim in the sea. And he said the weirdest, blow your mind thing to Tom Parker, who was coming to terms with it. He said, you know what? I'm going to be really careful as I say this, because I don't want to, it might be a lot to accept, but I wouldn't change it. The way that I have lived my life, since I found out about this. It's unpalatable, isn't it, to hear this? I've seen every day as a gift, and I've never lived like this my whole life. I look at my life now, and I cherish everything as a gift, and it's unpalatable, and it's crazy, unless you see the identity message that is underneath it. To live your life as a gift. What a joy. This is our story, if we are Christians and believers in Christ. This is one of the big messages of the Bible, it's a gift. God 
screams most loudly, I believe, through the story of his son. He speaks most clearly. We see this in Hebrews and other New Testament passages. He speaks most clearly through his son. And when we look at his son, what do we see at Christmas time? What do we see on the cross? We have a gift. God is saying to us, what you have is a gift. The creation that is around you, this planet that you've got, and what are you going to do with it? It's a gift. The possessions that you've got, the stuff that you've got. I've worked really hard. I'm the worst. It's my, this is my thing, my house, my, st- my stuff. Matthew will tell you about this. My, that's my stuff. This is given. God says, I give you this stuff. Even, Bible blows us away a little bit with this, even the good people that we might go on to be, even the good works that we might do, even the changes that happen in our lives are given. The salvation that we have, the security that we have in heaven is a gift. Who do you think you are? Do you really want to find out? Who do you think you are? God says to us through his son, accept the gift. You might need to lose some things along the way. You might even lose what you think is yourself. But if in doing that, you find God there, as C.S. Lewis kind of said, then you get God and everything thrown in.